Hi, Brother Sam here. This is the final chapter of Men of God. It's called A Man's Life in Christ. You know, when we think of the 12 apostles, it's easy to picture them as stained glass windows or statues. It's easy to forget they're regular guys. They were husbands, fathers, fishermen, tax collectors. Point being, there's no special elite club that strong manhood in Christ comes out of. It's for everyone, and the Lord wants to offer this to you. There's a powerful gift He wants to bestow on you. And by the end, I think you'll have a better idea of how you can ask to be prayed with and the ways you can be blessed that empowers you to live the vision God has placed on your heart and called you to as His beloved Son. Let's dig into this. Chapter 5 a man's life in Christ. I have a beef with Peter Jackson. He's the visionary movie director who famously brought The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's epic trilogy, to the screen. He gets so much right. The Hobbits, Gollum, the Riders of Rohan, the Lidless Eye, and yes, that Balrog. One thing he gets wrong, though, is Aragorn. In the movies, Gondor's once and future king acts like an angry teenager. That's not the way we see him in the books. From Tolkien's point of view, Aragorn isn't conflicted about his royal destiny. He's noble, courageous, and goes so far as to mess with Sauron's mind. If you know anything about the story, Aragorn uses one of the Palantirs, an orb of seeing through which Sauron spies, to show himself holding the sword Anduril, forged from the blade that cut off the Dark Lord's ring finger and launched the whole epic tale. This scene is in the book, but not in Jackson's film version. For Tolkien, Aragorn isn't conflicted. He's ready to rumble. I realize some guys haven't seen the movies or read the books. Bring it to confession, then stream the trilogy. It won't be a penance. Here's my point. In Tolkien's time, Aragorn is a heroic figure, plain and simple. But in our day, such heroism is muted. The world we live in tries to diminish virtue, tries to tarnish any vision of nobility in a man. Why is this? Here's my take. Satan fears heroic men. They do more damage to his would-be kingdom than any other natural force. Our media culture often serves his ends by publicizing and magnifying the flaws in virtuous men, the living, the dead, and the fictional. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean that a skillful director like Peter Jackson is Satan's tool. I mean that he's savvy enough to read his audience. He knows what we want. We like to see weakness in others. A flawed Aragorn is more appealing to the modern mind. Isn't it true? Our society takes a certain delight when a hero falters, when another one bites the dust. I'm not speaking here about what statues we should keep or remove from our public spaces. I'm not talking about exalting great men at the expense of great women, nor the other way around. This is a different issue altogether. We see it in the popularity of anti-heroes, Breaking Bad, etc. It's the desire to honor the dishonorable while dishonoring the honorable to downplay goodness and nobility wherever and whenever it can be seen. Why are so many real heroes diminished, reputations destroyed? Here's at least one reason. It sells. 
and truth be told, we're the ones buying it. What gives? In a certain way, it takes some of the pressure off the rest of us. Like, if they're not so good, maybe we don't have to be either. That's sad because we need heroes. When none can be found, men become lost. Who are your heroes? Who are the men that make you want more out of life? Who expects excellence from you? Where are the men in your life who hold mediocrity in contempt? Find those men and you will begin to find what every man needs in order to succeed. Vision. The Power of Vision A man needs vision for his life. It's an energizing awareness, a great purpose that summons and inspires him. It's not a laundry list of goals or desirable qualities. It's something lived out. Every man needs to see in his mind's eye the kind of man he wants to become. How do we start assembling that picture? It begins when we find a man fully alive who lives his manhood fully. We call this character, the quality of one who embodies a noble way of life, a worthy vision. Brothers, not only can we find men like this, we can be men like this. Vision is not a one-size-fits-all. Each man has to discover his own vision, his own unique path. It begins by asking yourself, what kind of man do I want to become? If that leaves you blank, consider the opposite. What kind of man do I not want to become? Talk about it. How do we gain vision as men? How do we discover the unique purpose that will direct and energize our lives? In the company of Jesus and among other men. That's why I want to talk about a man's life in Christ. What does that look like? How do we live that out in SPO? Regular Guys Jesus spent a lot of time with men. What kind of men were they? First we notice something encouraging. They're regular guys. They fish, they fight, they swim the length of a football field for a hot breakfast on the beach. Our Lord's disciples were the kinds of guys that other guys would want to hang out with. The kinds of men that an older man would say, I want my daughter to marry that one. They were solid, sensible, and in the categories of their day, successful. Point being, they were good men. But these weren't superheroes. Not saints yet. Far from it. Fact is, they lacked something essential. They didn't have what they needed to embody Christian character or to live a full life in Christ. They weren't ready yet to go the distance. Among the men, there were two sets of brothers. First, Peter and Andrew. The others, James and John, were nicknamed Sons of Thunder by the Lord. That's because they were trouble. Jesus liked men who were trouble. Then there was Judas, kind of quiet, off on his own. He didn't have much character, did he? He used to steal from the other disciples. He never addressed that weakness in his own character. So, when trouble came, naturally he turned on his fellows. He betrayed the Lord. Judas wasn't the only man whose character failed. All the disciples abandoned the Lord in his hour of need. This in spite of bold promises, quote, Can you drink the cup that I am to drink? Unquote, asked Jesus. We can, said the sons of thunder. And then there's Peter. Quote, Even though I should have to die with you, I will not deny you. Unquote. The other disciples said the same. I'm sure they really meant it, too. What do we see here? 
As regular guys, they made the mistake that regular guys usually make. They had too much faith in themselves, too much confidence in their ability to get it done. They overestimated their own strength apart from God. Sometimes they could be bold, taking out a sword, lopping off an ear, but other times they failed, totally. That's the way it goes, even for good men. Character and vision comes up short when it isn't fully grounded in Christ. That's what we see in the media almost daily, good men falling short. So before we get a vision for our lives as men, before we decide the kind of character traits we want to work on, we need something else, something essential that men often miss. What is it? Again, we look at the disciples. After the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples at Pentecost, there is an astonishing change in their character. No longer are these just good men who lived with Christ. Now they are men in whom Christ has come to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. Such a difference. Power, Love, and Self-Control A man's life in Christ is brought about by life in the Holy Spirit. To understand what that is, we look to St. Paul, the patron of SPO. He was a man whose character radiated the power of God and the life of Christ. Writing to Timothy, a young missionary he was training, Paul said, quote, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Unquote. Power, love, and self-control. This, in a nutshell, is a man's life in Christ. These are not all you can say about it, but they are three things you ought to see. Power. Men like power. I do, don't you? Do you like driving a car with power or one that sputters and stalls? Do you like using a computer with a weak processor or one that can handle HD graphics no problem? Electrical power, mechanical power, muscle power? We want it. We expect it. One way you experience power as a man of God is you become very bold. Here's an example. Soon after Jesus commissions his disciples, now apostles, to proclaim the gospel, they find themselves in hot water. The same authorities who arranged for Jesus' crucifixion bring Peter and John into court. They've been out in public talking to people about Jesus Christ. The same men so fearful a few months ago are suddenly fearless. As the scene plays out, the judges try to intimidate them, to shame them into silence. They don't back down. Then this, quote, Observing the boldness of Peter and John, and perceiving them to be uneducated, ordinary men, regular guys, they were amazed, and they recognized them as companions of Jesus, unquote. The authorities make one last try, demanding that the apostles stop proclaiming salvation in Christ. Peter answers, quote, Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. Unquote. That's boldness. It's the mark of a man who has been empowered in Christ. It's one thing to be bold in a worldly way, to say things or post things that support the ideas our secular society applauds and approves. It's another thing altogether to be bold for Christ. For those things that are not widely applauded and approved, that's the kind of boldness we mean, power in Christ to do things that of our own flesh we would not do. 
Another thing about power is that you become committed to what is true. Truth for us is the person of Jesus. This is not something we figure out. Rather, the Holy Spirit, quote, will guide you to all truth, unquote. So it's not primarily a set of ideals or doctrines. Truth is, first of all, a person. And as I get to know this person, my life presents me with a challenge. Will I be one with this person in the truth, or will I find my truth elsewhere? There is great pressure today to be silent about the truth of Jesus Christ. One example is the common assumption that, deep down, all religions are the same. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, we're told, are all spiritual leaders who taught a way of love. The simplistic answer to all the religious violence in our world is that the followers of these great teachers just need to coexist. The Holy Spirit shows us something deeper when we look at who Jesus really is and what Jesus really taught. We no longer see the issue framed as Catholics arrogantly say they're right and everybody else is wrong. Instead, we recognize that the Spirit speaks through the Catholic Church in a way that reveals the mind of Christ. This is not some prideful claim made by the Church. It's a promise from Jesus himself who said to his disciples, quote, Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Unquote. The Lord wants all people to know the way of salvation. The Church, despite its very human limitations, is His chosen instrument for communicating this. It doesn't mean people have to be Catholic to know Jesus. It means that the Jesus they know, the one who saves, is proclaimed faithfully by the Church. When you are bold in the Holy Spirit, if you have Jesus Christ as your truth, then you are willing, at great pain to yourself, to speak of the Christian religion as something that is true for all, not just true for you. This is said humbly but also boldly and without apologizing. We don't impose it, we only propose it. The message of the gospel is a gift for the whole world. We don't hoard it as our own or huddle up in Christian enclaves. We share it freely even if that's deemed intolerant. You have to be very committed to the person of Jesus to uphold that, don't you? To see that as truth, that's what happens. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you become a man of power, that power permits you to boldly live the truth of the gospel in a way that you could not do otherwise. Love. The second thing that characterizes a man's life in Christ is that he learns how to love. Now, you can say that you already know how to love, and you could even list the people that you love. I'm not here to disagree. But there's another kind of love, the love of somebody who knows Jesus. This is a man who says to Jesus, I want your ways to become my ways. The Lord's ways of doing things, his way of seeing things become your way. When you talk about the Lordship of Jesus in your life, that's what it means. You remove yourself from the center of your life and allow Jesus to be in the driver's seat, so to speak. When we really do this, not just listen to it talk about it, that's when we begin to understand what it means to love. In order for Jesus to become Lord of our life, we have to surrender to him. Now, that's a problem. We don't like that word, do we? For us, 
That means shame and defeat. Picture a sporting event when the camera cuts to the losing team, sitting on the sidelines, heads hanging down. That's what we associate with surrender. We think it's for losers. In Christ, surrender is something else altogether. It's not giving up or giving in. It's choosing your captain and your king. It's deciding which side you're on in the battle. Surrender to Christ means allowing someone who has everything for you to enter your life and to begin to activate himself in you. His presence, his power, his love in you. It takes surrender to do this, brothers. You can't just say, well, I'll have Jesus on Sundays. The second thing that a man learns when he allows Jesus into his life is that his job is to pour himself out for others. Instead of being a man who is self-centered, who reduces everything, including women, to how this can serve him, his needs, his plans, his priorities, he begins to give himself outwards. When does a man know that Jesus is the Lord of his life? When can he say with total confidence that he has surrendered to Christ and not just read a prayer at a retreat? When he begins to pour himself out for other people, because that's the way Jesus loves us, not holding anything back. So Paul says to Timothy, quote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, proclaim the word, be persistent whether it is convenient or inconvenient, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, will stop listening to the truth and will be diverted to myths. But you, be self-possessed in all circumstances, put up with hardship, perform the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Unquote. When a man lives this way, when he's really generous, he learns that his life is only returned to him in the measure that he gives it away. He becomes a man to the degree that he pours out his life for others. So, if he's called to be married, he understands that God gives man and woman to each other as helpmates. That means at very least she's not his playmate. He knows if this is his call, that he's responsible for her and for every life that comes to them in a family. Or he may be called to a celibate vocation. Then his life is poured out in service to his parish or in his apostolic work. His job is to offer his life for Christ in whatever way the Lord wishes to have it. That's what love looks like in Jesus. A man who is learning to pour himself out has understood this. In 2015, Islamic State rounded up 21 Coptic Christians in Libya and executed them on a beach, carefully documenting the massacre with video to make a statement to the world. The men they kidnapped and killed were construction workers, regular guys, with one exception. Matthew was a friend of theirs, a driver from Ghana who was captured along with the rest. Though accounts vary, it seems he was a new Christian, that his faith was fairly minimal. As the men were slain, they encouraged each other as brothers. By the time the executioners reached Matthew, something had changed. His faith was no longer small. He proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and was immediately killed. As his blood flowed into the sea, it mingled with that of his brothers, poured out. Self-Control this is about being the master of your own person. It means that what you do or not, how you act or not, is something that you decide upon, and not because other people say, well, you ought to do this, or you ought to think that, or you ought to approve of this. 
and you simply say, okay, 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 because that's what the self-appointed authorities want you to say. As we've seen, this includes the issue of your own body and of sexual purity. But that's not the only kind of purity. There's also purity of intentions, attitudes, and motives, among other things. Self-control means taking God's possession, which He wants you to have, over yourself. The fruit of self-control is inner peace. You become a man who has a great deal of peace in his heart because he knows who he is in Christ. When he's tempted, when he's pushed in life, when people say, I don't want what you think, he's able to stand firm. Three keys. How do we get them? Power, love, and self-control. They are three simple things, really, but they are keys to your manhood in Christ. They can only be unlocked to the extent that Jesus is Lord in you. So how do you get that? How do you go from Peter before Pentecost to Peter and John saying to the authorities, we can't help but say what we've seen and heard, who don't mind being beaten and even rejoice over it because it's for Jesus? How did they get there? How do we? The answer, of course, is Pentecost. It's the time when the Holy Spirit, who was always in Jesus, but was given over in his death, this Holy Spirit now comes upon people who want him. And when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden they come to know who Jesus is and what a life in Christ is all about. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, simply believing in Jesus Christ is not enough. Even demons believe. Have you been empowered by the Holy Spirit? Again, it's not just about praying a prayer or attending a retreat. Does the Holy Spirit move you? Has he begun to exercise the Lordship of Jesus in you? We see in Acts that the Spirit is poured out more than once in the community, especially as persecutions rise. Is there a need in your own life for a deeper outpouring? Is there something the Lord still wants to do in you to unlock your full manhood in Christ? That's worth praying about. When you are empowered in the Spirit and the three keys are present, you emerge as a man who stands before his Lord, and having surrendered himself, he says, Lord, in you is my life, in you is truth, in you is power, love, and self-control, and I don't mind getting beaten for it. Not that you love being beaten, but you're not backing down because of it. Brothers, we will be beaten for it. Maybe not physically, and the authorities may not be courts of law. Then again... But they will threaten and try to shame us nonetheless. They will tell us not to speak about Jesus unless he conforms to modern myths rather than sound teaching. They will tell us to obey our desires and our attractions instead of obeying our Lord. All this they'll claim by talk, text, and our newsfeed because they care about us. More likely, these types of influencers calculate that if we obey our desires rather than our Lord, they can feel better about doing the same. No go. Here we are, and here we'll stand despite their shaming. That's manhood in Christ. There are other kinds of manhood, but they're not in Christ. They all fail at some point when it comes to issues of power, love, and self-control. Only the Holy Spirit can enable us to go the distance. Beg the Holy Spirit. How do you get this? In your own life, you beg the Holy Spirit to come into you. 
you'll have a chance to do that, to ask the Holy Spirit to come and empower you to live your full manhood in Christ. You can ask him to displace the old man, the self-centered and self-serving man, with the new man in Christ. When you do this, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you and begin to move. He'll empower you in a way of saying bold things for Jesus you never thought of saying, of being generous in ways you've never thought of being generous, of being patient, of being pure, of seeing chastity, that's the word for sexual purity, as something powerful. That's the life, brothers. The Lord Jesus wants it so much for you that he will give anything so that you may have it. He gave his life upon the cross, and he gives his life in the Holy Spirit. Scripture says, quote, he does not ration the Spirit, unquote. He doesn't. As you receive the Spirit again and again, you become a man in Christ Jesus. Why not? Why settle for less? Why settle for something that people tell you is okay? Tomorrow they'll tell you something else is okay. The lie about Christianity is that it closes down things. No, it opens out things, and to grow old in the service of the Lord is one of the greatest pleasures a man can ever know. Will you accept this invitation? Where there is resistance in your heart, say, Come, Holy Spirit, deal with this in me, but I want the gold. I want life in Christ. I want to be a man who's filled with power, love, and self-control. Amen.